0: You're listening to a sermon from Redemption Church, Calgary South. We exist to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission by seeing the lost redeemed, the redeemed matured, and the matured multiplied for the glory of Jesus Christ. For more information, visit redemptioncalgarysouth.com. Turn in your Bibles, please, to John. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 29. If you don't have a Bible, the ushers would love to put one in your hands. If you don't have a Bible at home, take that home. That's yours. We want you to have God's Word. So go ahead and raise your hand if you want a Bible, and they'll bring it to you. So John, chapter 1, verses 29. Verse 29. As you're turning there, I want to remind you where we are in this Christmas season. Uh, We're doing a three-part sermon series, kind of feeding off of Handel's Messiah, and last week uh, we looked at the promised nativity. And uh, last week I began our sermon series with the picture of these two guys. I'm going to put it up here again. Two guys with uh, awesome hair again. And, and, uh, and so we had a look at these gentlemen, and I asked you who they were. And I think the one on the left you guys figured out pretty quick. Uh, that's George uh, Handel, right? Uh, the famous Baroque composer. Uh, and wrote the famous Handel's Messiah that we're building our sermon series off this week. And uh, he wrote many orchestras, many oratorios, and, uh, and this is usually put inside of symphonies uh, over the Christmas season. So most cities will have Handel, Handel's Messiah on display. But as we looked at the second guy, remember we were a little bit puzzled. Who is this guy? Who is the guy that's on the right? Well, that was Charles Jennings. And he was really significant because he's the guy that put together the lyrics for Handel's Messiah. Now, often we don't, we listen to, we won't really understand the lyrics going on in the background. But if, if you go and take a look, just Google uh, lyrics or the libretto for Handel's Messiah, you'll see that all of the lyrics are strictly scripture. It's amazing. It is all scripture. So awesome. Directly from God's Word, telling the story of Jesus the Messiah, telling the gospel, okay? Now, last week, I think I, I uh, suggested you guys go home and listen to maybe the first movement or the second movement. So who who went home and, and listened to part of Handel's Messiah? Okay, good, awesome. I should have had some candies to give you guys for that. Um, who actually sang along? Yeah, okay, great. You guys do it together? No. No, oh. <laughs> well, like I said... All of the lyrics are scripture, right? Charles chose this, and, and, and through it, last week we witnessed the promised nativity of Jesus, that, that in his nativity there was an urgent message, an urgent message from God's word. And, and last week the points were this, God has promised the only way of salvation. You are hopelessly helpless on your own. He miraculously sent his son for you. This is the greatest news you'll ever hear. Stop striving. Stop striving and start believing. It was a bold message at that time for the culture, and it's a bold message for today as well. It's a message that we need to hear. Even as Christians, we need to hear this over and over again. It's why we exist. And so today we're going to see in the second movement more of the glorious gospel on display. Uh, We're going to witness today the present passion of Christ through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and through his ascension that this is the gospel. And through that, we're going to see four passionate identities of our Savior, four passionate identities of the Messiah. And they're crucial for our understanding of the gospel. We need to know this Messiah. And so before we do that, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity again uh, to open your word in front of us, that you have given it to us freely. You have preserved it and it is glorious. We thank you for these two gentlemen who put together this music and the lyrics that are proclaiming the gospel. We thank you that this was done hundreds of years ago, and yet today we get to glean the gospel from it and to learn from it. And Lord, it's, it's your word. It's your word that is powerful. It's your word that is living and active. It shows us our sin, and it puts us back together. We thank you for that by the power of the Spirit with your word you are transforming us into the image of Christ. We pray that you would continue to do that today through your word preached. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. And so as Handel's Messiah begins in the second movement, it begins on a a pretty somber note if you listen to it. Uh, It's really getting serious. And so it starts off in John chapter 1, verse 29. John 1, verse 29. The next day... He saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. One verse to start off the first movement. And what we're seeing here is a passionate identity of our Savior, and that is that Jesus is the sacrificial lamb. He is the sacrificial lamb, and he lived to take your sins away. Just read that again. The next day, he this is John the Baptist again. John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so, just like last week's sermon, this this movement, the second movement, starts with John the Baptist. John the Baptist was a prophet. He was the messenger. He was the forerunner of Jesus Christ. And so Charles Jennings, as he puts the lyrics together, pulls them out of Scripture, he is showing us again the testimony of John the Baptist, that it's very important. But the beauty of John the Baptist is that John the Baptist never says, look at me. He always says, look at the Lamb. Look at Jesus. I must decrease. He must increase. And so he says, behold the Lamb set your eyes upon the Lamb. He declares that Jesus is the Lamb. And so this was even a bold statement at at that time, and it's still a bold statement today, even though maybe we don't understand what he means by Jesus as the Lamb. He is the Lamb. So if you've been a Christian, or you've been around church for any kind of period of time, maybe you grew up in church, you would remember Uh, that we sing a lot about Jesus being the Lamb. I remember as a kid singing, you know, Jesus is the Lamb. Lots of songs are about it, but I never really understood what that meant. Um, It wasn't until I I grew up, started studying the Bible for myself, and started to understand, well, what does this mean? What does Jesus, the Lamb of God, mean? So as John here, we say he's looking at Christ, and he says, Behold the Lamb. That lamb has an amazing responsibility to take away the sins of the world. So it reveals to us that there is anticipation for this lamb. There is anticipation for Christ being the lamb of God. If you look at the Old Testament, we see the lamb throughout the Old Testament, starting with Abraham and Isaac. Remember that in response to God's command, Abraham takes his son, up the mountain to sacrifice him in obedience to the Lord. And as that young Isaac is, is walking behind his father, he says, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And as Abraham lays his son On the wood, and he pulls out his knife to slay his son. The Lord stops him and he provides a ram in the thicket. He stops him, showing us that there is a substitute, there is a lamb, there is something to come in place of us to to pay the price. So he's teaching all of Israel at that time. That there is atonement for your sin, but that he has a better way. It's not in you, it's in a lamb. We can also remember the Israelites as they were being saved from Egypt, right? The Lord instructed them in Exodus 12, verses 5 to 7, to take a lamb without blemish, a male a year old. And then they were instructed to kill that lamb at twilight and to put its blood on the doorposts of their homes. And as the angel of the Lord was coming to destroy the firstborn, he, he saw the blood on the doorposts and passed over their homes. A lamb had to be killed as a substitute for the sons. A spotless lamb. And then this began that yearly celebration of the Passover, reminding them of God's salvation. And even more than that, even more than they knew, pointing forward to a spotless lamb to come, one who would take the place. And he is the sacrificial lamb. Jesus is the sacrificial lamb that came to take away the sins of the world. And so in Jesus Christ, in his incarnation and in his life, the time for sacrificing lambs is over. It's done. Because he is the final sacrifice For all of mankind. A lot of foreshadowing in the Old Testament pointing to this day, pointing to his present passion. And so, as you and I prepare for Christmas, as we think about the baby in a manger, remember that this baby, this man, has been waited for. This this lamb has been anticipated for hundreds and hundreds of years. Throughout the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament is pointing to this day, so his birth and then him being sacrificed. And so when you think about it, you think of these thousands of gallons of blood being spilled over generations. Only one could take the sins away of the world. All of that blood actually did nothing. What it did was point to blood that was going to be spilt in the perfect, spotless lamb. Why? Because we need to be forgiven. We need to be forgiven our sin. We have sinned against a holy God. We need to be forgiven, and this is nothing that we can do in our own efforts. We can't do anything to be forgiven in our own strength. No matter how hard we try... Forgiveness cannot be bought. It cannot be purchased. Only one could purchase that, and that was the spotless lamb. 1 Peter 1, 18-19. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. Like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. That's the truth. That's the truth of the Lamb throughout Scripture. It is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. You move ahead to the the end of Scripture, Revelation 5.12. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. That is the gospel. And that's what we're celebrating at Christmas. And so when you think about Christmas, you think about giving each other gifts. right? We love to give each other gifts. We love to receive gifts. Think about the gift of the Lamb. Think about this lamb wrapped in a blanket in a manger. This is the gift that Charles Jennings, in his culture, wanted the world to know. This is the gift that we need to know about today. It's the greatest gift you could even understand. And so through Handel's Messiah, as he leads us through the Scriptures, is teaching us that the world needs to be forgiven, and God has provided the way through the lamb, Jesus Christ Christ. And so if you are a believer this morning, you know that Christmas is just the beginning of the story, right? This baby, he came to live as the spotless lamb. He wasn't just born as the spotless lamb. His life was spotless, was pure, was sinless, the life that we couldn't live. You know, as, uh, as parents, when, when you have your children, when you have your babies, and you, you love to to unwrap them, and they are so precious, they're so miraculous to us, right, when you first see them. uh, We take them out of the blanket, and we count their little squishy fingers and, and toes, right? But sometimes our Christmas story stops there, with Jesus. It stops with a manger, right? But the story is so much more. John MacArthur says in his book, God With Us, he says, Here's a side to the Christmas story that isn't often told. Those soft little hands, fashioned by the Holy Spirit in Mary's womb, were made so that nails might be driven through them. Those baby feet, pink and unable to walk, would one day walk up a dusty hill to be nailed to a cross. That sweet infant's head with sparkling eyes and eager mouth was formed so that someday men might force a crown of thorns onto it that tender body, warm and soft, wrapped in swaddling clothes, would one day be ripped open by a spear. Jesus was born to die. And that was God's plan. That's the only plan. God sent himself as the perfect lamb to be a sacrifice for you. It's the greatest gift you could ever receive. So Jesus is this sacrificial lamb. He lived to take your sins away. What a passionate identity. And so with that truth established for the listeners of Handel's Messiah, Charles Jennings then takes us to one of the most profound pieces of Scripture in the Bible. You can start turning there to Isaiah chapter 53. Middle of the Bible, you'll find it there. If you find the Psalms, it's very close. One of the most profound pieces of Scripture in the Bible And shows us another side of our Savior. That he's not only the Lamb of God, but he's also the suffering servant. He's the suffering servant. He died to bear the wrath that you deserve. He died to bear the wrath that you deserve. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah here is prophesying about this coming Savior. In chapter 53. Starting in verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground, just meaning he grew up like any other human. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. So let's just stop there for a moment. Let me ask you, is that the Jesus that you know? Is this the Jesus that you picture? Or do you, does your mind go back to some Renaissance painting of some beautiful Caucasian Jesus? Right? Isaiah here shows us that the coming lamb is going to be a sacrificial, humble, suffering servant. He's going to come in unexpected humility, one who was lowly. No majesty that we should look on him. No beauty that we should desire him. Jesus wasn't coming for a popularity contest. He's not winning any beauty contests. He was unimpressive in his appearance. He would have looked just like any other run-of-the-mill Galilean. Even worse, he was from Nazareth, the son of a carpenter. Remember that saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? But this shows us that God came for us in an unexpected way, not the way that we would choose. We would choose the glitzy. We would choose the famous. We would choose the beautiful. But he came in lowly, suffering humility. Jesus was none of that. He was despised and rejected by men, verse 3. He was a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Jesus was not accepted by his culture. Yes, the crowds were following him, but as we learned as we're studying the Gospel of Mark, as he would teach the truth, the crowds would leave. And only a few would stay. Many would turn from them and they would go their own way. Just think of the the scribes and the Pharisees. They would actually seek him out To kill him. They wanted to shut him up. They despised him. They pursued to kill him. They didn't want him to be followed. They didn't want him to cause a revolt. They didn't want him to disturb their religious system. It was going far too well for them. And then we know that he was taken to the hands of his oppressors, we know that he was betrayed. We know that he was given over to the hands of the religious system and then eventually into the hands of the Romans, and he received the punishment of a vile criminal. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. The world, by and large, hated him. They hate him today. And then he received the hatred of the world, the wrath Of the world and the wrath of God Himself on His back, being whipped, being tortured, being mocked for us. Verse 4 Surely He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed Him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. God's pouring His wrath out on Christ the wrath that you deserve, the wrath that I deserve, poured out on his son, smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. Remember those little hands and his feet and his side. He was crushed for our iniquities. Just picture his beautiful baby body now as a man being beaten. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. This is God's plan. And I love this. And with his wounds, we are healed. King James Version says, by his stripes, we are healed. And so as we're looking at these scriptures, we remember the promised nativity, that it was pointing to a present passion in Jesus' passionate presence, his, his journey to the cross for us, that he was humble. And that He loved us so fully. He came and suffered for us so that we could be healed. That we could be healed of our sins forever. That the stain of sin and the fear of death and the war between us and God can be completed, ended. And the chastisement that is due us, we deserve all of it. All of it was put on Him. And we who believe and trust in him are at peace. We are at peace with the Lord. By his wounds. By his wounds we are at peace. And then verse 6. How do we respond to this? How have we responded to this? All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Do you see the amazing grace here? That even though you and I in our life, we have rejected and we have despised the truth of Jesus Christ, we have gone our own way, the world is going its own way like straying sheep. The Lord chose to save us, the Lord chose to send Himself. And it's something that we don't deserve. We don't deserve any of it. We don't deserve grace. That's why it's grace. What we deserve is God's judgment. That's what we deserve. Everyone has gone their own way. And even as Christians, we have days when we go our own way, and then the gospel is still the truth that brings us back. And all of this culminated in the cross, Think about the cross I mean, we're thinking about the manger, but the manger points to the cross. The cross was, was actually meant for us. Every one of us deserves to be on the cross. Our hands, our feet, our sides, destroyed. But he took it for us. We're the ones that deserve the beatings. We're the ones that deserve the scourging. We're the ones that deserve the whipping and the torture. We're the ones who who should be crying out to God, why have you forsaken me? You and I deserve hell. We deserve eternal punishment because we have cursed the holiness of an eternally holy God. We've got to wrap our minds around that. Jonathan Edwards, Puritan preacher, says, Our obligation to love, honor, and obey any being is in proportion to his loveliness, honorableness, and authority. But God is a being infinitely lovely because he hath infinite excellence and beauty. So that sin against God being a violation of infinite obligations must be a crime infinitely heinous and so deserving infinite punishment. The world hates that truth. And we have a hard time understanding that as well. But it is the truth that he is infinitely holy. Therefore, he requires infinite judgment. But here, as we see Isaiah prophesying some 700 years before Christ about this humble one who is to come, the one who came at the perfect time. When we think about that, you need to also picture yourself that before Christ, you are standing on the edge of hell. Jonathan Edwards used to have a sermon that was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But the grace is is that he took our hell for us. He received the wrath of God for us. Jesus himself was killed for us. He was killed. His body gave up. And he truly died. He really died. This is not a story. Isaiah 53, 8. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus really died. He really died. It was the only way. He had to come and he had to die. He had to write himself into history because we couldn't do it. It's impossible. A spotless lamb had to come. Salvation comes through him alone. Just like the old hymn in Can It Be. Could could my zeal, no respite, no. Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Jesus alone saves. And so do you believe this truth? Do you believe that you, before Christ, deserve hell? Do you believe that by the grace and the love of God, Christ humbly died in your place? If you are an unbeliever here this morning, this message is is so important for you today. This is a hard truth, but it's a good truth. The truth is that we're calling you, according to Scripture, to turn away from your sin and to trust this spotless Lamb. To give up, to surrender, to repent, to finally run into those saving arms of the Savior. Cry out to him today. Confess your sin to him. He is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all righteousness. That's the beauty of the gospel. He did it. You surrender. You turn from your life. You turn to him. He saves you forever. What great news. How about us Christians? Because we, we, we also struggle, right? Life is not easy. In this world, we'll, we'll have times of struggling. Sometimes the world gets too big. Sometimes the stresses of life overshadow the goodness and the glory of God. And perhaps your, your anxieties turn your affections into despair. Do you stop in these moments and ponder and meditate upon the eternal glory of this truth? That God sent himself to die for you. God sent himself to bleed for you. Friends, darkness cannot live in light of this truth. Run to the gospel when you feel like that. Counsel your heart with the words of God and his gospel. Because you have everything in him. Let the light of the gospel shine its eternal beauty upon your heart again. We preach the gospel to ourselves over and over again as Christians. We need to hear it. Allow it to cause your heart to sing. Died he for me who caused his pain, for me who him to death pursued. Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Let your heart sing that song and pull you out of the pit. Now, Handel's Messiah doesn't stop here. The curtains don't fall uh, on a dead Messiah because a dead Messiah is no Messiah. The song goes on. and We learn that Jesus is our victorious Savior. He arose conquering sin and hell. This is the present passion of the Christ. It is incomplete without his resurrection. In Peter's sermon at Pentecost, if you want to turn to Acts 2, Peter's sermon at Pentecost, he declares that Jesus died. He declares the gospel to those first century Jews. Acts chapter 2, verses 23 to 24. He says, This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, God has been planning this forever. He is forever, it's been his plan forever. According to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, but God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Yes, Jesus died, but it was impossible for him to stay dead. The whole plan all along was for him to be raised by the Holy Spirit. Acts 2:27, "For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your holy one see corruption." Jesus rose from the grave. We sang about that this morning. He rose from the grave for us to conquer our sin, to conquer our death, to conquer our sorrow. You know, at this time we'll see many TV shows, you know, Christmas and Easter you're going to see on History Channel and Discovery Channel and other channels, uh, lots of investigative reports trying to discount who Jesus is, trying to show us that this was all a big lie, right? And they often target the resurrection. They come up with all kinds of theories about how Jesus fooled the system, how he really didn't die, that Maybe he just swooned, he just just passed out, and then the disciples stole his body. All kinds of ridiculous theories that the Roman cross, that is 100% accurate, 100% kills people every time somebody's on it, that when he was put in the tomb, this massive stone and these Roman guards, which you would never want to face a Roman guard, somehow these disciples got around them. They deny the biblical truth, That Jesus rose from the grave, that he appeared to 500 eyewitnesses. When you think of Handel's Messiah and the culture at large, they were denying the truth. This was in the Age of Enlightenment. They were holding fast to, to man's reason, man's wisdom. They were denying the truth that Jesus is who he said he was, and they were denying that he was the victorious Savior. They were denying that he rose from the grave, that he conquered sin and hell. Now you may be thinking to yourself, why are we talking about the resurrection of Christmas? Isn't that Easter? Isn't that like a few months from now? Isn't Christmas about the birth of Christ? And I'll say, absolutely, it's about the birth of Christ. But we have to remember that Christmas is ultimately about the good news. Remember the proclamation of the angels, right? Right? good tidings, the gospel of great joy. And so it's not just about his birth. It's about his death. It's about his resurrection. This is the good news of great joy for the world to hear that miraculously, this God was born, 100% God, 100% man, the eternal Jesus coming and taking on flesh for us. Miraculously born And then he's actually born again. He dies. He is buried. And he is actually born again. Raised from the grave. The first born among many brothers. He's the first to be resurrected. He is our victorious Savior. We have freedom. We are free from the bondage of our sin and slavery to death because he rose from the grave. He won. Our Savior won. The Christmas story is all about joy. It's all about peace and hope and love. That's what these candles represent. All of that between God and man. Because Jesus rose from the grave. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sin. It is so essential for us to understand that Jesus rose from the grave. The resurrection means everything. That was our our message last Easter. The resurrection means everything. And so Christmas has everything to do with the resurrection as well. Christmas also has everything to do with Christ's ascension. Handel's Messiah closes the second movement by calling us to worship this King of glory. The Messiah is the King of glory. King, he's the king of glory. He ascended to be worshipped forever. Psalm 24, verses seven to 10. "Lift up your head, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. And so the Psalm is speaking of the temple of David and the procession of the ark of the covenant, the very presence of God coming into the temple, calling this call and response. Who is this King of glory? It's God, it's the Lord coming into his temple. The people declare it over and over again that the the one coming into the temple, the one coming into the gates of the city is the king of glory. And as we think about Jesus resurrecting from the grave, and after he spends 40 days with his disciples, after he appears to 500 eyewitnesses, it was time for him to complete his earthly mission. It was time for him to return to heaven and send the Spirit It was time for him to rule and to reign at the right hand of the Father because he's the king of glory. And so as the psalm calls these people to lift their heads, it's calling you and me to lift our heads to heaven and to worship the king of glory. He is the king of heaven. He rules over creation and he is the head of the church. He is preeminent. I mean, that reminds us of our Colossians series. He is first. He is supreme. He is best. Supreme over all things. Ephesians 4.10. He who descended, so he who came down, is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. So let me ask you this morning, who is this king of glory? Who is this king of glory to you? Is he really supreme? Is he really preeminent? Is he really first? Colossians 3, 1-2. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Where Christ is. That's what we seek. We seek him, his presence. Set your minds on things above. Where he is, he's seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of this earth. So friends, are you looking to him? Are you looking to him? Are you trusting in him? Are you submitting your life in obedience to your ascended king? Who is this king of glory to you? Does he have real authority over you? Or do you treat him merely as a friend? Well, he's definitely our friend. He's the friend of sinners. But he's not just our friend He is our King. He is our King. He is our Lord. He is more than just a Savior. He is our ultimate authority. He is our authority. A.W. Pink said, thousands are deceived into supposing that they have accepted Christ as their personal Savior, who have not first received Him as their Lord. The Son of God did not come here to save people in their sin." but from their sins, Matthew one twenty one. To he saved from sins is to be saved from ignoring and despising the authority of God. It is to abandon the course of self-will and self-pleasing. It is to forsake our way. It is to surrender to God's authority, to yield to his dominion, to give ourselves over, to be ruled by him. So as you think about this Christ child, you think about the baby... And as you think about him being the sacrificial lamb, the suffering servant, your victorious savior, what do you think about his kingship? What do you think about his authority? Does he have authority? Do you submit willingly to his authority and his rule? Do you obey his commands? Just think about your last week or your last month. Think about what Christ has commanded you to do through his word. Have you obeyed Him and followed Him in light of who He is? Or have you rejected Him? Or have you said, I'm, I'm going to go my own way? Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Friends, He is the King and He will be worshipped forever. He will be worshipped forever. Every knee shall bow. Every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Lord. Are you bowing the knee down? Are you bending your knee now? Are you worshiping him in obedience and faith today? Who is this king of glory? Friends, we have been made for this. We have been created and designed to be worshipers of the Lord forever. That's who you are. That's what you were created for. That's what we were originally created for to have our eyes set on our Lord and Savior and to worship Him forever. And so are you worshiping the King of glory right now? It's not just singing. It's in your life. Are you obeying His commands? Friends, sadly, many people make Jesus a get-out-of-hell-free card, and yet they reject Him as Lord. I live this way for far too long. In my teenage years and into my young adulthood, loving Jesus as a Savior, but yet wanting to hold on to my sin. You have to be all in. You have to be fully committed. There is no fence sitting in the kingdom of God. You can't serve two masters. You will either hate one and love the other, or you will be devoted to one and despise the other. Jesus is both Lord and Savior. It's like a coin. It's, it's on both sides. All at once, you can't have one without the other. He is the King of glory. He has ultimate authority. And so as Charles Jennings and, and, and Handel are finishing this second movement of, of this musical piece, we see the Messiah on display again. We see the glorious gospel on display again. That they saw the truth of an ascended king of glory. And as they wrote this music, this was the climax of the piece. This was the high point, the mountaintop musical moment of Handel's Messiah. And so at the end of this movement, they turn to the voices of the angels in Revelation, Revelation 19.6 and 11.15. Revelation 19.6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there was loud voices in heaven, saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever.